This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Good evening and welcome. My name's Fred Paul and you're watching ADH TV, the new home for common sense commentary in Australia. Well, Pauline Hanson opened up a can of worms on the weekend when she said about New South Wales Green Senator Maureen Faruqi, what many people often say in private about most Green politicians. When Senator Faruqi heard about the passing of Queen Elizabeth, she posted a tweet saying, quote, I cannot mourn the leader of a racist empire built on stolen lives, land and wealth of colonised peoples. We are reminded of the urgency of treaty with First Nations, justice and reparations for British colonies and becoming a republic." Unquote. Well, Faruqi lives in a liberal democracy. She has as much right as anyone to speak her mind and contribute to the contest of ideas. But so too does Pauline Hanson, and she fired back with some very emphatic advice. Quote, your attitude appalls and disgusts me. When you immigrated to Australia, you took advantage of this country. You took citizenship, bought multiple homes and a job in parliament. It's clear you're not happy, so pack your bags and piss off back to Pakistan." Unquote. Well, that's firm but fair by any reasonable standard. It's one thing for Faruqi to express an opinion that is offensive to many people in the nation that offered her a better life when she migrated here as a 29-year-old engineer in 1992. But it's another thing to base that opinion on falsehoods. Here at ADH, we will continue to fight back every day, if necessary, against the idea that Australia was founded on racism and that its culture remains racist today. Like cleaning up the rubbish left behind, behind by environmentalists at a climate rally, or serving gourmet hors d'oeuvres to supposedly working-class Labor cabinet ministers at a private party. It's a tough job, but someone's got to do it. As I said last night, Arthur Phillips' instructions upon founding the colony of New South Wales in 1788 were to seek amity and friendship with the natives and consider them equal before British law. 
Philip himself also declared that there would be no slavery in Australia, a full 19 years before William Wilberforce's Slave Trade Act famously ended slavery in the British Empire. We should be proud of this. But instead, we have a Pakistani-born senator telling us that Queen Elizabeth, who didn't assume the throne until 1952, represented a racist empire. Well, as Senator Hansen might say, if it's so racist, why would Faruqi want to live here? Also on Faruqi's Twitter feed is an inspiring, inspiring video about the obstacles she has overcome in her life. She says, quote, they told her she couldn't play cricket as a young girl, like her brothers could, and to not, and to not bother going to university. She doesn't say who they are, but she doesn't need to, because that sort of sexism died in Australia years ago. So it's not us. 59% of, of university students in Australia are female, and women's sport has been increasingly professional for decades. They are clearly the mullahs and other religious patriarchs she left behind in the misogynist Islamic Republic of, of Pakistan. She's lucky Australians never tried to prevent her pursuing her dreams, but it would have been nice of her to acknowledge that. She also says in the video, They told me to go back to where I came from, but I stayed and my family built a life here. Built a life that would have been impossible to build back in Pakistan, I'm guessing. On Alan Jones's show last night, Senator Hanson acknowledged that Australia did have a racist path, past, but we were dealing with it. We were, she said, getting over the hump of racism that is part of our past. But you don't solve racism with racism towards white people or by falsely accusing a beloved monarch of crimes she never committed. Neither do you solve Indigenous disadvantage with, as Senator Faruqi suggests, a treaty. You'd think that members of the Senate would understand that it, that it is ludicrous for a nation to sign a treaty with a select minority of its own citizens. How on earth would that work? Who would sign it? What would it say? Would there be reparations involved? If so, would people of mixed Indigenous heritage receive or pay these reparations? Would the responsibility for reparations extend to recent migrants, like Faruqi herself? Decades of cultural complacency have created a situation where a member of the Australian Senate can denigrate the institutions and traditions that made her life, her own life, so free and prosperous. You don't need to be a member of the aristocracy to be offended by Senator Faruqi's remarks. You just need to be, a, be grateful to live in a country that is one of the happiest, most welcoming places in human history. Senator Faruqi is not alone in deliberately targeting our traditions. This afternoon, another Green Senator, Lydia Thorpe, posted a tweet about the death of the great Aboriginal actor, Uncle Jack Charles. In the tweet, she said, quote, we've lost our king, unquote. The snide reference to the royal family was abundantly clear. 
Meanwhile, Thorpe's actual king, Charles III, said upon acceding to the throne on Friday, quote, wherever you may live in the United Kingdom or in the realms and territories across the world and whatever may be your background or beliefs, I shall endeavour to serve you with loyalty, respect and love as I have done throughout my life, unquote. Wherever you live and whatever your background or beliefs, what does it say about Faruqi and Thorpe and their ilk that they reject the familial humanist bonds of affection in the Commonwealth, but refuse to leave? Well, you'd think that after decades of publishing so much pseudo-scientific modelling, reaching back to the early days of global cooling, climate change and mad cow disease, none of which turned out to be accurate, scientists would stick to simply explaining observable phenomena, you know, like scientists have always done. Why did the apple fall from the tree and why do the stars rotate in the sky? That sort of thing. But the temptation to predict the future is too difficult to resist for these masters of the scientific universe. Our own CSIRO, which invented mosquito repellent and fast Wi-Fi, among other wonderful modern things, recently published its once-in-a-decade list of global megatrends. And they are as woke as you would expect from an organisation filled with ivory tower boffins. According to the report titled Our Future World, we are all going to be adapting to extreme weather events of climate change and fighting a growing world population for finite food, water, minerals and energy resources. Because, you know, when the Club of Rome predicted all that in 1968, it turned out to be so accurate. At the same time, we will be adopting digital technology, no surprises there, and letting artificial intelligence solve our problems, as if our own intelligence isn't enough. There's no mention of Western governments to never again resort to authoritarianism as they did over the past two years, or the need for the United States to uphold the principles of Western democracy against an increasingly aggressive China. Without our freedoms being guaranteed, you'd have to say that the rest of the megatrends would be difficult to achieve. The report says, quote, at CSIRO, we use global megatrends to identify areas where we can solve the greatest challenges through innovative science and technology. This helps ensure that every research dollar provides the maximum benefit for current and future generations of Australians, unquote. This is the organisation that tried to tell us that the Great Barrier Reef was dying and that man-eating sharks are declining in our waters despite increasing numbers of fatal attacks. When the CSIRO talks about research dollars, they're talking about the money that funds their own careers. The report includes this defense of consumers, quote, consumers are demanding increased transparency from organizations, governments, and scientists to maintain their trust, unquote. The CSIRO itself could do that and be a lot less woke. Well, we've heard how much New South Wales Green Senator Maureen Faruqi 
a recent migrant to Australia, disliked our beloved Queen Elizabeth. Now let's hear how the Queen was perceived by three generations of Italian migrant Rocco Loyacano's family. Rocco's parents and grandparents migrated to Australia in the 1950s, coincidentally just as Elizabeth acceded to the throne. Rocco himself, now a law academic at Curtin University in Perth, a writer and a regular contributor here at ADH TV, was born in Australia and raised in a household where the monarchy was respected as a significant part of Australia's history and culture. He wrote in The Spectator this week, quote, My father still proudly has the Bible that was presented to him at his naturalisation ceremony, with a picture of Her Majesty the Queen Elizabeth II on the inside cover. Rule of law, freedom, opportunity. This is what Australia and its system of government embodied in the Queen represented to him." Unquote. I'm delighted to say Rocco joins me now. Rocco, welcome. Good evening, Fred. Great to be with you. Rocco, I'm going to start by paraphrasing Tony Passon, the Liberal member for the federal seat of Barker in South Australia. He's another patriotic Australian of Italian extraction. Tony once told me that multi-ethnicity is a wonderful thing, but multiculturalism doesn't work. By this he meant that we should welcome people of all ethnicities, but to expect migrants not to participate in our culture will only lead to division. I think we are seeing those divisions every day now, especially since we lost the Queen. What was it like in your family, Rocco? Were you brought up to be Italian or Australian first? Well, I was brought up to be both. I mean, and I, and I proudly describe myself as an Italo-Australian because obviously my, my parents transmitted to me the love of, of my language and my culture. But the fact of the matter is that uh, they, they came to Australia because of, of what it represented. Uh, and you, you, you quoted me, I mean, freedom and freedom and opportunity. And, and I think that goes for most of the migrants who, who came uh, following uh, the Second World War and even before that, uh, World War One, where they left uh, war-torn countries that were uh, destroyed. A lot of the time they were under either communist or autocratic or fascist uh, regimes. And they came to Australia because it represented uh, freedom, democracy, opportunity, and all those values uh, that, uh, that were bequeathed to us uh, by, the, by, the, by the British system. Um, and they were perceived by migrants as being, this is the best place where you can come and you can bring up your family because of the fact that, look, we don't have, we don't have, uh, there's no danger here of our values, of, uh, of our values of family, of our values of tradition, of our values of hard work, of our values of thrift and of our values of freedom uh, being contradicted or undermined um, by the government and the system it represents. Yeah, I've got to point out, it's a, it is a two-way thing. I mean, Australia represented opportunity and freedom and, and prosperity to migrants, but those migrants also brought a lot with them. You know, the Italians and Greeks in the post-war years brought enormous uh, sophistication to what was, you know, a pretty remote part of the world. But it was a two-way exchange, wasn't it, Rocco? I mean, you've got to, you've got, you can bring your culture here, but as long as you love the place, everything's fine. 
That's right. And the, th- the thing I, I, I mean, you see, you see these bumper stickers sometimes, if you don't, if you don't like it, leave. Well, I think if, if you're going to criticise, if you're going to criticise the system of government that we have here, um, because it's colonialist or it's imperialist, well, then why, why stay? Um, I, and the thing is, the migrants were expected uh, to contribute because Australia needed them and they needed Australia. As you say, it was a, it was a two-way street. We were called New Australians. Um, and in the end, um, look, there were times, obviously, I mean, every country has blemishes in its history and treatment of migrants is, is no exception. But overall, um, look, you, you can't say that Australia wasn't welcoming or Australia wasn't appreciative of their contribution. Um, just as, uh, just as uh, we, we took on uh, the Australian ideals, um, then the Australians took on our ideals. I mean, you don't have to go to every street corner and see how many, how many coffee bars there are um, and the different kinds of places that you can eat uh, to see how much, how much is appreciated and how much the migrant contribution is loved. But that wouldn't have been possible. That wouldn't have been possible if Australia didn't allow that to happen and unleash the power of the individual to allow that to happen. So how inextricable is the monarchy from Australian culture in your eyes, Rocco? I don't think you can imagine Australia without, um, without the monarchy. And you only have to look, you only have to go back to the Republican referendum in 1999 to see the areas that voted to retain the monarchy. Um, they were areas with heavy migrant populations, a lot of the time working class, the working class is inherently social conser- socially conservative. Um, and I mean, I know my family. I think to uh, everyone definitely, uh, everyone definitely voted to maintain the existing constitutional arrangements. Um, you you cannot have. I don't think you can have an Australia without without a constitutional monarchy. It's funny that the the, the people who are always on about inclusiveness are, are, tend to be the ones who reject the monarchy. But I mean, Charles's first. Uh, speech as king said it doesn't matter where you're from or what your beliefs are I will serve you loyally and with love I mean isn't that about as inclusive as you can get and and they're the values they're the same values that that his mother um, the queen uh, spoke to in that speech in 1947 on her 21st birthday when she said my whole life whether it be long or short will be dedicated to your service and that's, that is what uh, attracts uh, people to come to Australia because of the fact that it welcomes people from all over the world, from all kinds, from all faiths, from all cultures, and gives them a home and allows them to flourish. Well, let's talk um, about another patriotic moment uh, recently happened on September 5. Another recent migrant, Irish-born Keith Woolahan, delivered an absolutely wonderful maiden speech in the House of Representatives. Woolahan, who regular viewers will, will remember was on this show only a few weeks ago, arrived here with his family in 1988, the year of our bicentenary. He studied law, became a barrister, joined the military, became a commando and did three tours of Afghanistan. Now, you've read his uh, maiden speech, Rocco. What did you make of it? It's a speech that uh, exhibits what one might call true liberal values. Um, it reminded me a lot of Tony Abbott's maiden speech where he spoke about not big government, about allowing people um, to, to flourish. Uh, government is there to give people a hand up 
not a handout. Um, and I'll just read some of the experts of, of uh, Keith Woolahan's speech, if you don't mind. Mm-hmm. Um, he, said, he said this. Um, he spoke about the true north uh, as guiding him. And he said, the true north will always be my family and the values of free enterprise and individual freedom. Um, democratising prosperity and democratising power, allowing people, trusting them to to assess risk, to speak their minds. Um, and the dream of the opportunity is what drives people to come here. Um, and these things are values not to be junked in times of emergency, whether it be a war or pandemic. These are values to be doubled down on when our, nations, when our nation is tested. I mean, they're the values, again, that, as I described, are, are true liberal values. Uh, they're the values that have stood the test of time. They're the values that until two and a half years ago, uh, this country uh, upheld and valued. And it's time that we, as Keith Wallahan said, doubled down on them, uh, appreciated them and, and respected them for what they are and realised that, that they are the bedrock, they are the foundation of what our country is built on and attracted people like Keith Wallahan and my parents and my grandparents to, to come here and make a life for themselves. Well, I mean... Incidentally, the same day... Go on. Sorry. Go on. The same day, Day Lee gave her maiden speech and uh, spoke about her experiences as a refugee being welcomed into this country, and she doubled down on the COVID restrictions, saying it reminded her of being back in a communist country. Well, Keith uh, offered also, uh, other than um, imploring people to uh, aspire to the values that have always, um, you know, Australians have always embraced. Keith also offered some very practical advice. He said, get involved in your communities and, you know, to coach a footy team and join Rotary and, and you know, get involved. But he also said, join a political party, which, which is excellent advice these days because political parties used to be the beating heart of our democracy. They used to be where people would, you know, meet like-minded people, albeit from different uh, paths in life. But these days, our political parties have just become uh, magnets for people who want to impose their political opinions and values on other people. It's not really what it's about, is it, Rocco? I mean, is, our, is, is the demise of grassroots political parties uh, a, a danger to our democracy? Well, that's absolutely right. I mean, both uh, the major parties uh, were founded as grassroots, particularly the Liberal Party was founded as a, as a grassroots political movement, not it wasn't the, uh, beholden to the unions, it wasn't beholden to big business, it was for the forgotten people, the artisans, the shopkeepers, uh, everyday Australians. Um, and I think a lesson we, we, we get a lot of uh, our system, obviously, from the UK, but one lesson that we might be able to learn from from them and maybe improving the involvement of people in political parties is actually, uh, I was actually once opposed to this, but I've actually come around. I think in electing the leader, as you've seen in the UK, the members get a say. I think that might be an incentive and a way to actually get people involved in politics again, actually picking the leader of their party, the person that actually um, best represents best represents their views rather than leaving it to to apparatchiks and uh, and uh, politicians to oh, choose. Oh, Rocco, I, I couldn't. Great. I, I couldn't agree more. I mean, with all, uh, w- without any disrespect whatsoever to to our current leaders, I think they'd be quite different if the grassroots made those decisions. And we wouldn't. We certainly wouldn't be having these random, uh, you know, people being rolled in 
in party rooms while they're in in power and so on. It's uh, it's we, we've got to we've got to make it every stage of this process far more dem democratic, I think. But Keith, Keith also That's said, right. go on. No, and that's right. And the thing is, you know, to attract people to turn up to branch meetings on, in the middle of the week, at night, it, it, whereas if you actually give them a say in who's going to lead them as the person who best represents them to argue for their values, I think that would be, that'd be a great incentive to get people involved again. Here's another quote from Keith Woolahan. Quote, Speaker, I have not come here to make a, I have, I have not come here to make a career. I have come here to make a difference. Moved by gratitude, I have not come to tear down institutions, but to nourish them, unquote. That's, a, that's quite the contrast to uh, Maureen Faruqi's uh, sentiments, isn't it? That's it. And you, you only have to uh, ask the question of Maureen Faruqi exactly. If you, if, if you want to be elected to, to bring things down, and this could extend to, to, the, to the Greens and, and to Lydia Thorpe, I, I don't think you're actually making a contribution to make our, to make our country better. Um, and if, if sure people are elected to, to, to put a particular view forward, et cetera, but again, um, I, much, I much rather people who want to put a positive view, who say, look, this is how I think we can make things better, rather than constantly knocking all the time and saying, this, this has to go, this has to be canceled, this is no good, we've got to get rid of it because it's bad. Well. Why don't you say, look, this is the positive way forward. This is what we have to do to make to make things better, to actually nourish the institutions and make the country a better place. And to leave, I think, the, the classic politician's um, mantra should be, well, look, when I finish public life, uh, did I leave my country a better place than when I came into government? Um, that's how John Howard concluded uh, his term. And I think every uh, major political leader has said, well, look, as, uh, that I leave office having left the country in a better place than when I found it, and that I think should should be a should be a, a starting point for everyone who aspires to political office. And Rocco, just quickly before you go, we are being reminded of these uh, timeless values of Western civilization a lot these days, and particularly yesterday when the United States was uh, remembering the 21st anniversary of September 11. Uh, President Biden said we should never forget what happened on that day, but only a few months ago, he was saying that the worst, the, the greatest threat to the United States were people who wanted to make America great again. We live in confused times, don't we, Rocco? Yes, and look, that, uh, when, when someone's main political message is only to denigrate uh, people who don't want to vote for them who, or who can't vote for them, uh, that person obviously has nothing positive to say about what he or she has achieved or he or she wants to achieve. Um, uh, America at the moment is experiencing inflation uh, at the levels not seen since Jimmy Carter was in power. Um, there's an energy crisis. There's a crisis of confidence uh, in that country as there is in, is in the Western world. And uh, rather than actually uh, doing things that might address and reassure people that better days lie ahead, no, we have, to, uh, we have to throw mud and we have to denigrate our political opponents. That might be uh, his deplorables moment. And in November at the midterms, we definitely will find out. Yes, and we've got to remember what, keep, what, what we have in common, not what tears us apart. Rocco Loyacano, thank you so much for your time.
Now, just because a culture rejects monarchy doesn't mean it rejects all forms of social hierarchy. The United States might have kicked out the aristocracy in 1776, but now, in its place, it has celebrity culture. You couldn't get a more vivid representation of this than Meghan Markle. Markle is a product of American culture, having achieved the fame she so desperately craved as an actress in the TV series Suits for eight years until 2018. This fame has given her a sense of self-importance that even the most senior members of her husband's family, the Royal Windsors, could barely imagine. While being born into royal duty gives one a sense of the inherent values of a particular system, fighting your way to the top of celebrity culture gives you license to spout the most appalling nonsense with an even more appalling amount of virtue. Only weeks ago, she was claiming members of the royal family had made racial slurs about her children. Even if the royal family had racist tendencies, and they don't, this claim would still be implausible given that the ethnicity of Markle's children uh, is almost identical to that of the Windsors. Such is Markle's gall, however, that on the weekend she joined her, joined her husband, Prince Harry, and his brother, Prince William, and his wife, Catherine, to meet mourners outside Windsor Castle. To Harry, William, and Catherine, it was a solemn duty to be with well-wishers who shared their grief. To Megan, it was another opportunity to bask in the spotlight. My next guest is Alexandra Marshall, who will describe how the pop culture world responded to this moment. Alexandra, welcome to the show. Thank you very much for having me. Now, let's start with Meghan's audacity, shall we? Did you notice any sign of her feeling regret for having insulted the Queen's family only weeks before she died? Of course not, but Meghan's problem is not what's currently going on now, it's that the entire history of Meghan's life, Americans in general have this perception of royalty as portrayed by Hollywood, which is uh, the pursuit of fame and wealth and privilege, whereas the British people, they understand that royalty is actually about service and devotion and humility and empathy with the people. And so Meghan has always, from her earliest beginnings of the royal family, struggled to reconcile what she perceived royalty to be with what royalty actually is. And that's part of the reason that the public split from Meghan so early on. They sense this difference. And Meghan still, to this day, struggles to understand what empathy is. And we could see it with Kate as she, uh, the Princess of Wales, as she walked among the people with her husband, the Prince of Wales. They understood the public grief and they interacted with the public in a respectful manner. But uh, again, uh, Megan's was all about the camera and how to behave and how it's going to look in the press. And that is simply not what royalty is. And it's never been more true than right now. While the nation is grieving this sense of history and grandeur and uh, Megan, the Hollywood version of Megan's royalty just doesn't fit with the British perception. Well, yes, on Megan's side, on Megan's side, you've got the vacuousness of pop culture and on the side of uh, Kate and William, you've got people playing meaningful roles, you know, even if they are aristocratic and born into it. But that contrast is pretty stark, isn't it? 
Well, the Queen isn't one of the most loved figures in the world because of her inherited position as Queen. It's not the sovereign title or the crown or the jewels or the palaces that give her this affection. It's her service to the public. That is how she has great, created this amazing persona that people are mourning today. And the Princess Royal, Princess Anne, has a, has a similar empathy with the public and they see her as one of the most beloved members of the royal family. I think that in some respects, Meghan thought that when she was crowned princess, if she looked beautiful, if she went to the, the chapel and uh, she, she donned all the glitz and glamour of royalty, that that would somehow uh, make her as famous and loved as the Queen. But that's simply not how this relationship works with the public. And good on him, Prince Charles, who is now His Majesty King Charles III, seems to have uh, adopted his mother's sense of duty. And he's a changed person that we've seen the last few days. Yeah, he really is. Uh, speaking of change, though, do you think Harry will go ahead with this tell-all book? Oh, it, it's the worst thing Prince Harry could do. If he had any sense and any understanding of the position that the royal family is in and the nation as, as a whole, he would just ditch this book, throw it in the shed, shredder, forget that it happened and bury it because the last thing he needs to do is throw more fire on this divide and it won't do him any favours and it won't do Meghan any favours and certainly not their children because the public will continue to turn against them, especially now the Queen is not there as a mediating force. Well, there was a moment during the proclamation that did spark a lot of interest online. I'm sure you noticed it was that moment when King Charles beckoned some uh, subordinate to come and take his inkwell away. Uh, I mean, social media lit up over this as if it was a sign that Charles was as uh, as condescending as and snobby and aristocratic as ever. What what was your reading of it? I think it was one moment in a, a period of great difficulty for the new king. I mean, we have to understand that he's lost his mother. He's trying to lead the nation in mourning. He's been given the most difficult job in the realm, which is nothing short of uh, an astonishing thing to, to carry when you're grieving. And we have to give him one moment of maybe a poor judgment call in a ceremony that, let's not forget, no one in living memory remembers how it's meant to go. So I think the intensity of that moment, we can forgive that. Well, speaking of, of no one knowing how, how these ceremonies are meant to go, we saw overnight a moment in uh, Edinburgh where a heckler yelled out as, the, as Andrew walked past behind the coffin. What was your take on that moment? Oh, well, there, you know, there was going to be one or two of these moments when you've got an entire nation coming onto the public view. What I thought, saw and thought was a, a better representation of what's going on was watching the Queen's coffin process through Scotland where the crowds were gathering along the entire length of her journey. They were throwing flowers on the road. The farmers brought tractors to the edge. They arrived on horses. Everyone in the town came out to either applaud in respect of her reign or to bow and curtsy as her hearse passed. And that was a true uh, symbol of how the nation really feels. One or two hecklers. I mean, look at society. You're always going to have a few in the crowd, aren't you? And the cameras like to focus on them. But that's all they've found, meaning the vast majority of responses have been respectful and uh, just an outpouring of grief from the nation. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I, I mean, Andrew deserves to be heckled, but... You really do have to pick your moment. Now, let's talk about the Pope's interest in artificial intelligence. This is a fascinating story. And as far as I know, you're the only person covering it, despite it having been around for a couple of years. But there's been some recent developments. Now, you'd think that the Pope, as Christ's representative on Earth, would be more concerned with human intelligence, not artificial intelligence. But tell us about the background to this, Alexandra. 
Well, the church is obviously an institution, an ancient institution that has been struggling with the advancement of science for many hundreds of years. We saw it struggle with the, uh, when, when the earth was no longer the center of the universe and the sun, you know, we revolved around the sun. All that sort of stuff worried the church because it was a change to their doctrine. They tried to fight against it. Now in the age of rising Marxism, the church is trying to find a way to maintain its position in the global conversation. And it's decided to join forces with the World Economic Forum and get itself in involved in the ethics of technology, which, you know, there's nothing wrong with saying technology should have ethics. That's uh, a pretty standard way to go forward. Now, the problem comes when you have to ask whose ethics? Like right now, your mobile phone is not trying to solve an ethical problem. It's a device. It's, it's impartial to politics, which is a great thing. It should always be. But now we're dealing with human biometric systems that, you know, they're merged with government control. And we're starting to see a problem where Whose ethics is this technology representing? And so it's called Rome Call. It's this project done by the, the uh, Pope's advisor for AI is a French monk. I mean, make of that what you will. It was news to me. But uh, they want to make sure that the ethical uh, nature of technology is maintained. However, after declaring all this human rights and coming down on how important this is, the very next thing they did was implement vaccine passports. And they said it was to protect people's individual rights. So this is how you can say that you're having ethical technology and then completely ignore it. And that's my fear that they talk a lot about climate ethics with their technology. Well, whose ethics are they going to employ? And will, will these companies even listen to the church? I think, it's, I think it's doubtful. Well, let's talk about those ethics and those companies. They were major tech companies like IBM and so on. And it seems to be some sort of alliance between the Vatican and these companies. I think, you know, the Vatican is just lending its, uh, its credibility to these companies. And they, the Pope endorsed um, a, a list of ethics to safeguard people from algorithms. <laughs> algorithms discriminating against them based on their quote, race, color, sex, language, religion, political or other opinion, national or social origin, property, birth or other status. Now, shouldn't the Pope be more concerned with morality rather than ethics? I know that's kind of almost splitting hairs, but it's a pretty fundamental difference nonetheless. Interestingly, there is a conversation coming up, although it is not as strong in the tech community as it should be, about what to do when governments instruct tech companies to create software that is a, a natural violation of human rights. That is, we currently have our government passing things like the digital identity, which represents a, an extreme shift in the rights and privacy of individuals. Now, should tech companies actually obey a government order to create this technology. Now, we saw the same thing with Google interfering with China, where China had Google making uh, databases and systems that infringed upon the rights of Chinese citizens. And they had a, a staff uh, basically protest against that behavior. And that's the only reason they stopped. But where is the West stopping their, uh, you know, instructions to create this technology? So it's not bad that the church has an opinion on it. The problem is the church is, uh, cuddled up and loving the same World Economic Forum that developed the, the uh, process and systems in the first place. So we don't actually have an ethical framework coming out of the church. What we've got is a marketing campaign that supports the abuse of human rights. Uh, and it's being done under the godly image. Uh, don't forget IBM and all the rest of them. They love the idea of becoming gods and transcending. And they use a lot of that language in their uh, marketing. So for them, it's great. For the church, it's great. But for humanity, for us, I don't think it's going in the right direction. 
What's the World Economic Forum's relation to all this? Okay, so this is actually part of the, the speeches that the Pope has given to the World Economic Forum at the Davos event. I think it's either two or three speeches he's given on this Rome call topic. And uh, it's linked in with mostly the farming and the, uh, what do they call it? Moral farming or ethical farming, sustainable, that sort of thing, all the buzzwords they use. That's what he's, he's concerned about, feeding the world. It's the old break bread or whatever, but upscaled to digital. And uh, if, as I said, for him, it's really just talking at these events and staying in the conversation and keeping the church relevant as the rise of Marxism happens around it. But it won't save the church because Marxism has no interest in maintaining religion. They'll keep stringing the Pope along for a while, but they'll ditch him eventually. So I think the church should be very careful. <laughs> well, speaking of feeding the world, it was reported <laughs> last week that snacks containing bugs are now being sold in a thousand schools around Australia. These bugs are high in protein and eating them is supposedly good for the, you guessed it, environment. Alexandra, do you think ideas like this are really meant to save the planet or is it just the left trying to undermine all our traditions in order to create a new, more gullible society? I think they're trying to warm us up to the idea of starvation being the new normal for a start. But I remember in school, the only thing they tried to stop us having was coffee, probably because they didn't want, uh, you know, jacked up students running around the place. But after I left school, this whole idea started of policing students' lunchbox where you couldn't have a piece of cake because you'll upset people who is not their birthday. And then you couldn't have nuts. You can't have chocolate. You can't have all these things because they're not healthy. And now, instead of having normal food in your lunchbox, they want you to have crickets and cockroaches and all kinds of rubbish. So we've gone from having great food to no fun to please eat the bugs. This is the direction our civilization is taking. But aren't they just trying to control us by any which way they can? Isn't uh, that the ultimate aim? Oh, it's all control. But at the same time, it's a, there are all these companies that are making these uh, snacks and uh, they've got all this eco money and eco funds coming into it. So in order to justify their existence as these new uh, green companies, they have to do deals with school to put this food into the schools because the kids are never going to go to the shops and go, hey, mom, can I have a pack of crickets? It's not going to happen. They play cricket. They don't eat crickets. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Well, they won't be playing cricket next, given that they're, you know, they're being taught that Western civilization is evil anyway. Alexandra Marshall, thanks so much for your time. It was a pleasure. That's Alexandra Marshall, whose brilliant writing can be seen every day on The Spectator Australia's website. And before I go, I told you at this time last night about the inspiringly principled and combative new leader of the Canadian Conservative opposition, Pierre Poiliev. Well, tonight, meet Georgia Maloney, who is tipped to become Italy's first female prime minister after the election on September 25 on Monday week. She is the leader of the conservative party Brothers of Italy, whose slogan is God, Family, Fatherland. Unlike in Canada and Australia, though, politics in Italy can't be reduced to a slogan. The nation's welfare has always depended on Europe's complex web of relationships, but even more so these days. For a start, there is the war in Ukraine and the sanctions against Russia, both of which are drastically affecting the supply and price of gas in Italy. Italy relies on imported fuel for three quarters of its power consumption, and this year the amount it pays for it has more than doubled increasing by 100 billion euros. 
Italy is dependent on aid from the European Union and an organisation Maloney clearly dislikes. She vowed in 2014 to, quote, build a majority in the European Parliament with the other Eurocritical movements for a motion that would allow the European Commission to be forced into an agreed and controlled dissolution of the Eurozone. Well, she won't be doing that now, even if she does win the Prime Ministership. The European Commission will make sure of that. European Commission aid to Italy, which consists of 69 billion euros of grants and 123 billion euros in loans, is largely tied to, quote, climate objectives. And even more ominously, quote, addressing social and territorial divides, unquote. It doesn't matter how nationalistic or conservative she is, Georgia Maloney's hands are tied by the European Commission. Aren't we lucky in Australia not to be beholden to these supranational busybodies? It makes Peter Dutton's job of pushing back against Labor's suicidal climate change fantasies and energy policies all that much easier. All he has to do now is step up to the plate. Well, that's it from me. Don't forget to tune back in at eight o'clock tomorrow for the great Alan Jones giving a voice to the voiceless here on ADH TV. And I'll see you straight after him at nine o'clock. Good night.